Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely of the R Street Institute. I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to talk criminal justice reform with Derek Cohen of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I do want to give a a brief apology at the beginning. Uh, The sound quality for Derek was not great at parts. Uh, He sort of sounds like he's calling from a, a county jail lockup. Uh, but uh, the, the content, I think, is really good, so I hope you will bear with us. Stick around after the interview. Josiah and I talk a little bit about our vision for the Urbane Cowboys podcast and tell you a little bit about ourselves and our personal political philosophies. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Dr. Derek Cohen. Derek is the director of the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and leads the Ride on Crime campaign. Welcome, Derek. Great to be here, guys. So our the subject for today is criminal justice reform. We're going to talk about a, a couple of different issues relating to that, but I, I want to start big picture. So I'm going to start with a popular story about crime in America over the past 50 years or so, and I want to get your reaction to it. Uh, so the story goes, you know, in the 1960s, you had a big spike in crime. Uh, there's all sorts of theories about why that was, Warren Court, excessive due process protections, uh, cultural changes, that sort of thing. But anyway, for whatever reason, crime went up uh, bigly. By the 1980s, people had got fed up with that, and politicians started imposing tough-on-crime policies, sending more people to prison, keeping them in prison longer. Since the 1990s, crime's fallen by about half. So the lesson there is uh, the way to respond to crime is tougher sentences, longer sentences, more prison. So what I just want to get your gauge your reaction to that. What does that story get right? Uh, what is it leaving out? What's uh, oversimplified? Well, I think that you need to also take into perspective what was going on all the way back into the 1960s, and then I'll check on the political landscape as well. You know, we remember that the first time we actually heard tough-on-crime rhetoric, and I shouldn't say we as in folks on this call, but the first time it was um, in a campaign was during Goldwater. And, you know, Goldwater was the first Republican to win several key states uh, in the South. That's, uh, that was replicated again uh, by Nixon four years later, and really honing in on one order aspect of political messaging. There really wasn't any uh, ascendant policy at this point. But then once Nixon got into office, you know, we started to see uh, increase of drug criminalization. We started to see uh, tougher sentences, uh, pushing back generally against uh, any sort of discretionary practices in sentencing. And, you know, it sort of came to a head, as you mentioned, in the 1980s, where it just kind of kept that stride. Now, I think that what that story is actually missing, though, is, is an element of historical perspective. If you look at it from a criminological perspective, we basically fired every bullet we had in the gun at it. You know, criminology in and of itself was a developing science, and you know, it's, it was a social science. I don't need to tell anybody uh, on this call or anyone that's listening that social sciences aren't exactly known for their, their high degree of methodological rigor. More social, not so much science. 
Exactly. Exactly. And so one thing that we did, we had these theories. We had about 14 families of criminological theory, uh, uh, no two of which that could be true at the same time, basically competing to how, for how we understand crime. And so we, had, we did very poorly at actually making rehabilitation programs that speak to what actually caused, what actually uh, facilitated criminal behavior. And so, you know, a study was done in 1970, rehabilitation as well, uh, a famous Martinson study, as it's known, that basically said, look, we're looking at all these things. These effects are, are modest at best where they're at all. And then there's some that actually seem to make things worse. So basically, it's a crapshoot. We're not doing anything good. Nothing works. And so, of course, that's that was a short-sighted response. I mean, you know, half, half of them were working, um, <laughs> at least to some degree. And the problem is we basically had nothing left in the box that are wrote almost vestigial understanding of deterrence theory. So when we actually look at let's create tougher, let's increase the one side of the ledger so that, you know, folks will think that the crime won't outweigh it. The problem, of course, with that being that, you know, that's no, that's how rational people think about it. And when we talk about uh, criminals, we're not talking about people that are rational simply by definition. This isn't to say about uh, people with different compulsions, people with substance abuse disorders, people with mental illness. If you're a, if you are a deviant thinker, you are thinking deviant. And so, you know, we just went to that deterrence logic, and that's the lens through which we looked at all our policy prescriptions, whether they were tougher sentences um, or, or what have you. And once we saw that they actually uh, produced a beneficial political outcome, you know, this was a bipartisan push. You know, we all forget about the uh, 1994 violent crime bill, also known as the Biden crime bill, you know, which it really put into place a lot of things that, you know, Democrats now specifically are rallying against. Right. So as I vaguely recall from law school, you know, there's a couple theories of what, about why we punish people. One of them, you mentioned a couple. One is deterrence, the idea that people are going to be dissuaded from engaging in criminal behavior because they know they're going to get punished for it. They're going to be thrown, you know, put away or otherwise run afoul of the law so that they won't do that. And the other one that you mentioned was rehabilitation. So you're going to kind of fix whatever, you know, whatever the, the issues are that is leading a person to a life of crime. You're going to train them or give them counseling or what, whatever it is that is going to prevent them from reoffending. Uh, I, I guess uh, there is a, a third one, uh, that I recall, which is incapacitation, right? Which is maybe maybe deterrence is not going to maybe people are you know criminals are not rational enough to look and say, oh well, you know I don't want yes I, I don't want to spend a lot of time in prison, uh, but this guy disrespected me, right? So I have to kill him. Uh, you know maybe uh, kind of person that does that deterrence is not chief in their mind, but you can if they are in if they are are in prison. They, at least to that extent, are not going to be able to commit more crimes out in society. This is an incapacitation. So, it, how how does that how does that factor in there? If if deterrence doesn't really work and rehabilitation, it sounded like it was all over the place. It, does that just leave incapacitation as all we've got left? Well, essentially, an incapacitation is actually the thing that uh, you know our criminal justice system, especially our, our carceral. Uh, portion of the criminal justice system does really well. You know, if somebody is locked up behind bars, they are, it is very difficult, not impossible, very difficult for them to facilitate the victimization of somebody in, you know, in general society. Of course, what that doesn't tell you is the fact that for us to achieve perfect incapacitation, that we would have to ascribe every level, every single crime, uh, basically with a life sentence, or else at one point this person is getting back out. 
which says that, yeah, we can actually incarcerate them th- or incapacitate them through their, their prime offending years. And I actually think that, you know, this is an argument that has some traction that tends to cut against the, the rhetoric of a lot of criminal justice reform-minded people. But moreover, we can't get away from the point that 95% of these people are getting out. And so that is 95% of people that we are going to make sure that we have some form of real rehabilitative programming uh, in there to do. Because a lot of people, once they go in there, they obviously weren't deterred, deterred by the state of sanctions prior to their effect. And as long as we don't uh, mess with any of the uh, dynamic criminogenic risk factors, be that criminal thinking, uh, antisocial peer groups, uh, antisocial behavioral traits, things like that, if we don't actually target those for change, then we're going to release somebody that's just as bad as... Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that, as with many things, we're dealing with trade-offs here. So there is, it does seem to be a value uh, for incapacitation in the short term, but as you point out, most of these people are going to get out someday, and so that does raise the question of, okay, what can we do to decrease the likelihood that they will reoffend? And then I, I suppose there's also a question of, you know, costs a lot of money to keep someone in, in prison, right? <laughs> and uh, particularly if you're keeping one person in prison, does that make you less likely to be able to keep to, to send other people in prison because all the beds are full, the prisons are all full. Uh, so even even more dangerous people might remain out on the street uh, because of because of overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's actually the, that's actually the very situation that we saw here in Texas prior to 2007. You know, we were uh, on the on the back end just to address prison overcrowding. You have to keep in mind, perspective wise, this was in the wake of the Estelle v. Ruiz decision that basically looked at our conditions of confinement in uh, our in the Texas prison system and says, you know, you have people stacked like sardines. You are basically trusting inmates with guns to guard other inmates, and there's this whole graph system set up around that and it all just and so we addressed it we did tear down the uh the uh building tenders but instead of uh actually looking at what is driving our prison capacity as it were we just built more capacity and we got to a point where as it was going up and up and up and up we get to the point in 2005 where we're actually running in procurement issues when it comes to building new prisons and so we're actually housing uh low-risk people for a long time we're letting people through mandatory uh, parole uh, or were, I should say, we were letting people, some of the parole uh, process out on the streets. And it just contributed this overall ecology, that, you know, I would say a bad public safety-oriented uh, policy. Right. So, you, you know, you mentioned Texas, and I think one of the interesting things about criminal justice for, reform is the extent to which it was a red state-led effort, a conservative-led effort. So why don't you just talk a little bit historically about how that came about and you know what some of the 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 basics of the history there and then we can go into some specific topic oh certainly so again just you know we had you know just like every other state since the 1960s experienced an increase in crime and to address that increase in crime we really had you know few arrows left in the quiver other than uh, increasing sentences increasing prison capacity to uh, deal with the population increase that those sentences were uh, those sentences were producing. Uh, that that basically went uh, in lockstep till 2005. You know, across the 90s when we built 100,000 new prison beds in that one decade alone, 
you know, that decade was split right down the middle between uh, governors of both parties. And, you know, building the prison system was, you know, foremost on, on both of the agendas. And again, there's I do have to put a, a caveat here. You know, incarceration and incapacitation as as its product, incarceration in and of itself is not a bad thing. You know, even, econo- even uh, center-left... Uh, uh, economics uh, researchers have looked into uh, this particular phenomenon and said, look, anywhere between 20 to 33% of the drop in crime that we've seen since the 1980s is attributable to the increase in, in prison capacity, which actually goes to show you that, you know, there are some people who are getting let out early that actually need to be uh, kept in longer. But that, but that 20% or 30%, you know, you're still, you still have 70 to 80 percent that's left unexplained and that's where we were you know we had this system in which people were being released on parole sometimes prematurely getting revoked very quickly on parole through technical violations or a new crime uh, we also had uh, very stiff sentencing that would send somebody to uh, incarceration you know for things that nowadays we would handle through probation or perhaps even a more astringent form of probation you know, like felony level probation, whatever the case may be. And these are just tools that we did not have in the toolbox. And so in 2005, uh, Jerry Madden was actually promoted, uh, was elevated to the corrections committee chair, and he was given the, the marching orders. He says, uh, you know, I've heard him tell this story probably a dozen times. He said, I, I heard the words that, the eight words that, um, you know, changed my life forever. Don't build new prisons. They cost too much. And so this was a very conservative speaker, Tom Craddock, giving him this direction. And he was basically saying, look, you're going to have to disabuse yourself of the prevailing orthodoxy that Republicans have held on to for, for quite some time. And now Jerry was an engineer, so he went back to, you know, went back to the drawing board and looked at, okay, how are people getting into prison? You know, again, obviously there's going to be a certain baseline of criminal offending, but what can we do to really make sure that we're prioritizing bed space for those who need it most. And when I say those who need it most, I mean that in a society standpoint as well, those who society needs in that bed space. And he saw that we had a lot of substance abuse revocations. He saw we had some hair trigger revocations on the parole side and basically uh, foisted a, 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 I would say, a, a massive sea change that really strengthened the ability for community corrections, be it probation or parole, to monitor individuals, to uh, intercede with substance abuse um, uh, treatment when necessary, and also work on you know having graduated elevating sanctions for those who are doing low-level offenses. So in other words, having more nuance within our sentencing policy to begin with. And so he proposed that in 2005. Um, it was a bit of a, a raw creation at that point and did end up getting vetoed by Governor Perry. However, in the interim between the 2005 and the 2007 session, our prison population grew 2%. So that is 18 months, over 150,000 beds with a 2% growth in a month. That is just, it's staggering. And it definitely elevated the issue uh, to crisis proportions. So, but Jerry had been working uh, in the interim with, uh, Mark Levin of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Ana Yanez Correa of the uh, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, and basically hammered out the various elements of that 2005 uh, reform that weren't satisfactory to various constituencies. Mark kind of spearheaded it from the conservative angle, Anna from the liberal angle, and they found a product that everybody could agree on, and that product was eventually passed. What we see prison population-wise after that was that our prison population basically plateaued and then started plummeting. You know, we're at a point right now where we've actually closed eight facilities um, 
across the, across the state of Texas. So eight prisons are closed, about 7,500 prison beds total. You know, that's a, that's a small uh, percentage of the overall prison uh, capacity. But you also have to keep in mind that we are actually taking capacity offline during a time, uh, a period of great growth from the state. So we, the state's population has been skyrocketing. It's been, it's been uh, more younger people have been coming to the state. And I don't think I need to tell anybody that younger people are a little more uh, predisposed towards crime, not even violent crime. And so even with that growth, we're still having less crime. We're still having less incarceration. And we're just kind of basically shattering the old orthodoxy on how you need to approach uh, the criminal justice system of locking them up and throwing away the key. Yeah, I just saw that uh, the Pew, Pew Trust just released a report um, on the Justice Reinvestment Initiative. Uh, the report claims that since 2007, 35 states that have followed the, the guidelines of the initiative have resulted in an 11% drop in prison population, have reduced recidivism, and reduced cost of taxpayers. What would you say to a thoughtful layman, and like, how would you, what metrics should they be looking at? What factors should they be considering if they're trying to, you know, formulate an opinion on uh, criminal justice reform and form an opinion in terms of whether reform has been successful or a failure. What should they be looking at? Well, I think some of those metrics are more valuable than others. And, and you have to keep in perspective as well that when we look at criminal justice reform system changes, you know, the individual, you know, the, the, the cement that is the individual has mostly, you know, hardened by that point without any sort of input from the criminal justice system. So changing criminal thinking and criminal behavior is actually very difficult in, in the grand scheme of things. But there are certain things we can do standing at the, you know, standing downriver from almost everything else in society, there are certain things we can do that actually start affecting, you know, affecting positive change there. So you mentioned uh, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative. Now, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative is, I don't want to say it's basically what we did. It's parallel to what we did here in Texas. Uh, JRI is a much more formalized approach with uh, technical assistance, either by, you know, groups like Pew or the Council of State Governments or the like that actually goes in, pulls just mountains of data from each uh, each state system, from county level data all the way up to the state level data, courts data, and everything. And they say, this is what your prison population looks like. This is what your uh, offender population looks like. This is the place the different decision points or actionable points within the entire process. And this is where basically we end up. And now what you can do with that is you can actually model, okay, well, if we just divert the flow going at this decision point to that decision point, you know, what will that mean for, uh, you know, recidivism, reoffending? Uh, what will it mean for prison population? Prison population is probably the most predictable metric, I guess you can say. When I say predictable, that doesn't necessarily mean best, of course, but predictable meaning if you stop sentencing people or adjudicating them to prison, obviously you're going to have lower prison population. I would say that if you look at system-level reform, that once somebody has been through the system, what they do is probably the most indicative, and that's what that recidivism metric uh, really gets at. And the truth be told, there are you know, there are good recidivism measures and there's bad recidivism measures. And usually I, I, I find anecdotally that the, the particular measure that one selects definitely illustrates their thinking on it. For example, if you have, want somebody that is, if you have somebody that's skeptical of, you know, any sort of criminal justice reform, they tend to pick rearrest. Uh, and rearrest is, a, you know, rearrest just basically means anytime that you're, you know, brought, brought into custody again, even if that doesn't revolve 
result in charges, a conviction, or a reincarceration. The folks that are uh, too, I would say, kind of doughy-eyed optimists on the criminal justice reform side want to talk about reincarceration when, of course, you know, if somebody's leaving prison and then reoffend, there's no guarantee that that next offense will be, you know, at prison level, um, you know, at a prison level sentence. And so what I usually go is reconviction because that could uh, encompass anything from, you know, misdemeanor jaywalking to felony murder. And that really shows if somebody has violated. So I would, I would just sum that up as recidivism tends to be the best metric. But as far as uh, JRI, JRI really has been more of a force for prioritizing, I would say, or the strengthening of community corrections. Again, that's probation, that's parole. You know, historically underutilized uh, elements of the criminal justice system that, that if used smartly, can actually uh, affect all the other metrics. You talked a little bit about state-level efforts, and I want to come back to that in a minute, but for a second, I want to talk about what's going on at the federal level. So there is, as I understand it, legislation working its way through Congress right now, the First Step Act. What can you tell me about the First Step Act? Well, yes, the First Step Act by uh, Congressman Collins of Georgia is actually uh, a similar uh, legislative initiative that we saw from uh, Senator Cornyn uh, during the 2015-2016 legislative session. So what this does is it just deals with in-prison populations. So, you know, these are not the folks that are uh, on uh, federal probation. These are the folks that are simply in the facilities and that will be being released soon. So what this does is it creates a evidence-based risk and needs assessment that simply uh, diagnoses the particular elements of the offender that need to be addressed. Um, that information in, is in and of itself valuable because that actually determines uh, in-prison action plans. Uh, for those of uh, for those who are deemed low risk, they actually have access to a good credit system that now enables them to earn uh, a segue into community confinement, whether that's a halfway house or home monitoring that they can earn their way into that a little bit faster. It clarifies some of the calculation of good time credits as the current system exists, and it also really strengthens some of the education and workforce opportunities uh, that, are in, that are in prisons as well by allowing, um, by allowing individuals to earn those credits through the successful completion of those programs. And then one, one amendment that was actually added by Louis Gohmert that seem, doesn't seem to uh, have, have been, uh, got a lot of uh, press is about that actually lets uh, nonprofit groups, you know, faith-based groups, uh, to have better access to the facilities to enable to facilitate some of these, uh, facilitate some of these programs. So that, in and of itself, was a very important amendment, and it uh, contributes to this. Uh, you know, I, I would say a fairly, a, a fairly, um, I don't want to say limited because these are these are very important reforms that are included. But ones that are actually a good first step to, uh, I would say, the the plurality of reforms that need to happen, um, and so that's that's where it is right now. And back in uh, May, I think it was May twenty second, uh, it was voted out of the House uh, three hundred and sixty to fifty nine. Uh, those are uh, three hundred and um, I'm sorry, of those uh, fifty nine. Uh, 57 of which are Democrats, and their complaint, and this is not me speaking for them, they are on the record saying such, is that the bill does not go far enough. Now, I, I want to put a little bit of, a little bit of uh, clarification on that about not going far enough. Um, they are mostly concerned that it does not contain sentencing. 
and you know most conservatives you know do want to see some you know see a modicum of sentencing reform the issue though of course being what does that sentencing reform look like there are folks on on the left who just want to see well we just need to cut our all our sentences in half or we need to reduce prison population by half you know that's <laughs> that's that's a bit uh, you know that's a bit shocking to a uh, incrementalist conservative conscience but people on the conservative side want to see mens rea uh, reform you know the actual way that we uh, understand the moral culpability of criminal law. Now, why don't you explain, uh, define what, what mens rea is and uh, how the reform would apply? Certainly, and most times when people talk about mens rea, they expect a uh, you know a very long sweeping oratory about the about uh, you know the guilty mind. But they actually did a pretty good job of explaining it in uh, in uh, legally blonde. So I usually refer them to that source. First of all, I would like to point out that not only is there no proof in this case, but there's a complete lack of um, mens rea, which by definition tells us that there can be no crime without a vicious will. Uh, but simply put, mens rea is, you know, one of two parts of a criminal act. You have the uh, actual act itself of, you know, of, of whatever is defined as a crime, you know, whether it's shooting somebody, robbing somebody, whatever the case may be. But then you have the the guilty mind component, the, the moral blameworthiness of it, that somebody knew that what they were doing was, was wrong and illegal. The reason that becomes an issue is when you have a federal code of 4,500 laws and also about 300,000 regulations that can carry, you know, prison terms. You know, there is no way that a rational person who has to work a job day in and day out knows that, you know, diverting a federal waterway, which can apply to almost anything, you know, can land them, you know, in a federal prison. And so what mens rea, you know, having a default mens rea standard, you know, whether it's willfully, knowingly, and there's a whole spectrum of standards that it can be, basically says that unless a law is passed with explicit strict liability components to it, then it's going to default to this particular it's going to default to this particular standard. And I think that that's something that we need to look at um, that we need to look at overall. Okay, so can anything get passed in Congress? What, what, what are the chances for the first step act? Well, I think I actually am pretty optimistic about the chances for the first step back. It's, it's over in the, I mean, with the, with the 360 to 59 margin, you know, that is just a, yeah, I, I would say that is a very declarative vote. Of course, though, now it's over in the Senate where, you know, the, the, the power of the upper house and more deliberative institution of the Senate is the ability to kill things by doing nothing. Um, which, don't get me wrong, I'm one of the uh, it's a feature, not a bug kind of guys when it comes to that. <laughs> um, but the problem is, is that same argument that you saw, the it does not go uh, far enough, you know, the folks that ascribe to that over in the Senate, several of whom probably have uh, a fairly ambitious schedule over the next two years, you know, are basically able to, uh, to basically able to stop it up without actually, you know, having to, um, you know, put that much effort into doing so and so i think it's going to be a matter of you know a matter of first trading a matter of negotiation i can't speak for uh, a lot of conservatives because i don't know um you know the the grand spectrum of what is seen as acceptable in sentencing reforms that can be bargained with you know i can i can say that i guarantee that all you know almost all uh, conservatives like the idea of a default mens rea or mens rea reform 
but that's usually a non-starter with liberals simply because that's you know that's what you actually empower the administrative state with the ability to pass uh, you know strict liability offenses and so I, I am I am cautiously optimistic but I do believe that we'll probably see uh, a presidential signature on the first step act uh, before uh, you know before November and once that you know once that actually goes through you know it's called the first step act for a reason I think we're going to see more uh, ambitious uh, reform efforts, ones that will probably have a, a greater degree of, of, of deliberation and uh, discussion around it. But I think that so long as something is demonstrated that can be done other than just naming a post office, I, I think that this is probably the best vehicle for doing that. All right. Well, let's talk briefly about civil asset forfeiture. Tell us uh, what exactly civil asset forfeiture is and does it, does it only apply to criminals? Oh well, that that's definitely a mouthful. So civil asset forfeiture <laughs> is, yeah, it, this is and there's you know there's it's a legal term of art uh, for when the government actually takes ownership of yourself, not possession of. And this is one of the, you know, one of the the uh, proponents of the status quo. Uh, one of the arguments the proponents of the status quo used to um, kind of murky the waters is that you have seizure, which, you know, I'm a police officer, I pulled Josiah over because he's obviously a suspicious looking individual. You know, I search his car and I see, you know, $10,000 in there and, you know, you know, good law abiding people don't just drive around with their uh, $10,000. So I can seize that right away. That's the, that's the way it is right now. You know, that's the way it, w- it would have been or will be with almost any sort of civil asset forfeiture reform I've ever seen. That's simply seizure. Now, what happens from there is where the forfeiture is concerned. So the government, you know, in a criminal case would basically say, okay, we have Josiah's money. We, we the police, we, the state, we, the government, have Josiah's money. What is it that he did illegal to come into, uh, you know, to come into possession of this? And we would say, oh, well, he's clearly money laundering or drug trafficking or whatever the case may be. And we'll file charges against him. And then upon, you know, upon prevailing of the case, um, you know, we actually then say, well, we have a criminal conviction and we're taking this money. Now, civil forfeiture takes a different approach to that. I don't even need to charge Josiah with a crime. But what I can do is say, look, more, uh, you know, more than not, this is probably, this probably came, they're probably ill-gotten gained. You know, I could, I could probably concoct a theory whereby he, you know, illicitly came into this possession of $10,000. And so long as I can just actually prove my case, when I say prove, I'm giving air quotes there, but prove my case to, you know, 51%, you know, just a little more than not, then that money becomes the state's. Again, Josiah has not, uh, you know, the state has not prevailed against Josiah in a uh, criminal action, though they are still alleging a criminal nexus. Now, what you might be thinking is, well, how is that even possible? There's no way that they can take your property by saying you're a criminal and then not charging you with a crime. They're actually not charging you with a crime. They're charging your property with a crime. And, you know, the uh, Constitution is actually very silent on the rights of money and cars and boats and all the things that we see, see being seized. And so I'm charging that $10,000 of the crime. Like, your very existence in Josiah's hands are, is illegal, Mr. $10,000, and that's why the state deserves to take possession of you. And so all the classical protections that have cropped up over, you know, you mentioned the Warren Corridor, cropped up during that period or that are enshrined in the Constitution, go right out the window and it basically defaults to what is a civil action against the money. And so this is, I, I guess, the best parallel 
uh, you know, that actually probably gives better faith to the uh, proponents of the status quo is saying this is, you know, with the uh, O.J. Simpson murder, you know, they might not have prevailed against O.J. Simpson in court, but then in the civil case, uh, you know, he was basically cleaned out because of that lower standard. And this lower standard, though, is basically where the property is being forfeited, but the person is not actually being held to account. You asked if it actually goes after criminals, and the answer is resoundingly no. Now, I like to believe uh, that you know more often than not, it targets criminals, but you just see a horror story after a horror story after a horror story of the federal or state or local governments uh, engaging in these forfeiture, forfeiture actions without even seeking criminal complaint, let alone perfecting one. You know, here in Texas, we actually had a really, really bad problem with forfeiture um, back, you know, back in the early 2000s. We actually were having folks on the side of the road basically signing over their property rights. And I mean that literally, signing forfeiture documents on the side of the road or being threatened with arrest. It, it was quite literally highway robbery. Uh, in 2011, that was reformed. We basically said everyone gets a day in court now. Of course, the day in court, it still goes to that very, that very low threshold of evidence. It goes to the, you know, and if you don't actually show up, you know, it's automatically defaulted uh, in favor of the state. And even so, if you show up, you have to uh, retain counsel on your own, uh, on your own dime. And so, therefore, you know, if you show up uh, with a lawyer, that might set you back two grand. But if you're only trying to get fifteen hundred dollars worth of cash back. You know, you're not going to set $500 on fire and waste a whole day, you know, just to make a point about property rights. So civil asset forfeiture is one of the biggest, uh, I would say, criminal procedural issues uh, currently right now because we simply don't look at it as a procedural issue. Um, there are many uh, judge justices all the way up to the federal bench that have said very critical things about it. Um, I don't mean to speculate on the, the current bench of the Supreme Court or what it might be. But I have, to, I have a feeling that it's trending more in the anti-forfeiture camp, and I think that a quality complaint that uh, rises to the Supreme Court, uh, much like the one we see coming out of Indiana now, might actually uh, yeah, eviscerate the practice in, entirely. But, you know, hope springs eternal. Yeah, since you mentioned the Supreme Court, uh, do you have a perspective on Brett Kavanaugh and that nomination? Yeah, and Kavanaugh, and I'm... You know, there's. It, I would honestly say that the type of uh, conservative or criminal justice uh, reform-minded person that you are would probably determine that. I, I, I think on a criminal justice stuff, I'd give him about a B. Um, you know, there have been liberal uh, libertarian critiques. I would say more absolutist libertarian critiques about some of his uh, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. But the more I delve into that, the more it seems to be uh, again. One uh, issues of doctrinal infidelity as opposed to the nuances of the the particular case. One thing about his record that I've looked at thus far that I think is actually something that should be uh, underscored is his uh, writings on overcriminalization. You know, overcriminalization. I mentioned the three three hundred thousand uh, regulations that carry prison terms. Overcriminalization is going to prison for snowmobiling through a protected federal uh, wildlife refuge when you're trying to escape a blizzard with your life. You know, it's uh, overcriminalization is being charged under the document destruction provision of Sarbanes-Oxley when you throw three undersized fish um, over over the side railing of your uh, fishing vessel because they were undersized and. Uh, 
you know, you got caught by the uh, game wardens. Those, those are elements of overcriminalization. Basically having just a, vol- a voluminous criminal code where almost anybody could be found of violating something. Uh, overcriminalization is one of the things that I think is another big issue uh, in federal system entirely. We don't see it so much in the state system because of the more, uh, I say, streamlined code structures. But having a huge administrative state that could send someone to prison, I think, is in the, you know, curtailing that is in the interest of everybody. And I think uh, Kavanaugh actually has a pretty good record on, on that specifically. So Right on Crime has been uh, amazingly successful, I think, in winning over conservatives to this new perspective on criminal justice reform. What's your secret? Well, I, I'd, like to say, I'd like to say that there's a, there's a, a secret, but I mean, it's, it, you know, I would just say it's the same general things that have attended, uh, you know, most other issue campaigns. It's, it's just being more specific about the information that you're producing and trying not to get caught up in the in the I, I would say the orthodoxy of the moment. So, you know, I mean, we were at a point in Texas when we started these uh, reforms where you know what we were doing wasn't working and it wasn't sustainable. So, I mean, it was almost a like a crisis situation that had to be addressed right away. But you know, that doesn't necessarily make it in and of its you know in and of itself something to be addressed. You know, conservatives have addressed that in the uh, past by just spending more and more and more money. And so when you actually start peeling apart the onion and you see that we are actually making communities less safe by putting people in prison who don't need to be there, putting low-risk people in prison worsens their risk level. People are going to leave, you know, low-risk people like, like you and I, or if we were put in prison, we would leave at a higher risk than we'd go in just by the element that we are surrounded with. And we were doing that. We were doing that as a default, and we were doing that for a vast panoply of, of offenses that really had no basis in any sort of rehabilitative theory. They didn't even have, you know, a coherent philosophy on on punishment in and of itself. And so once you realize that, you realize that the different segments of conservatism actually have different reasons for wanting to, you know, to basically, I wouldn't say upend the system, but make it, make it more effective, more efficient. You know, fiscal conservatives, that is one of the most easy, that's what the easiest argument to make right off the bat, because not only are you talking about immediate short-term savings, you're talking about compounding savings in, in, you know, I'd say more soft costs down the line. And you say, look, we can do this right up front, and we are not going to be spending nearly the amount of capital expenditures down the road. And that's not speculative. You know, we have to keep the lights on and the, uh, the you know, the, the guardhouse is staffed at all these prisons. They don't just run themselves. So that is avoiding mass little capital expense on the road. The libertarian uh, folks on the right tend to understand it from, uh, look, this, is this like every other uh, element of state uh, authority, is subject to abuse, is subject to waste, it's subject to inefficiency and it's subject to you know the general I, I would say the default of actually scaling back liberty than increasing it and that's even with taking a look towards the liberty of those that you know the liberty of those who are victimized you know it actually our system is one that doesn't provide for victims you know after the state gets its cut after the courts uh, you know the court system gets its cut Restitution's often, you know, farther on down the line. So this is something that actually prioritizes victims as well, and I think that appeals to, 
you know, even the libertarians who have more of a, you know, a, an understand law and order streak in them, but still want uh, to increase liberty. And then finally, I'd say this really resonates with some of the, uh, you know, the social conservatives, especially the evangelicals. They understand that human dignity is not is basically not uh, forfeited. Not not a throwback to our previous conversation. But human dignity is not forfeited upon somebody's, you know, horrific actions. And some of these are truly horrific actions, but these are still individuals created in the image of God. And therefore, we need to do what we can to witness to them, to help them find their own salvation, and really allow them to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, the system we had in place prior to deliberately got in the way of that. And so I think that once you realize that conservatives aren't a monolith, and that conservatives all have different reasons uh, for uh, wanting the, I, I would say, criminal justice system that they want. That that the Venn circles where those overlap all are over these policy positions. You know, this doesn't. If you look at some of the reforms that are going on nationwide, these aren't making, you know, these aren't reducing the uh, the severity of violent offenses or you know the most horrific crimes. What this is is saying, let's look at the crimes that we have on the books, how we're handling them. And perhaps we can handle them in a more effective and efficient way, both in the short and the long term. And I think that that is a, such a common sense, simple message that it messages to everybody. Well, this was very informative, but I, but I want to I want to learn more about the American judicial system. You've you've mentioned Legally Blonde. What other movies can you recommend that would would help the listener get a better grasp on the American judicial system? Uh, it is taking everything in my power not to uh, not to recommend Judge Dredd, um, <laughs> but. But I don't believe he passed the bar. So um, my cousin Vinny. <laughs> well, that could be one. I, I would say that you know there were there's a whole body of movies in the '60s that that tended to uh, I would reflect I'd say more reflect the cultural anti-authoritarian zeitgeist. Um, so you see, like uh, you know, Twelve Angry Men. You, you watch that, and you're like. You know, I, I guess we've gotten a little more subtler in our story crafting these okay. days, but 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 movies like that that illustrate certain, I would say, certain concepts of the judicial system are definitely ones that I uh, uh, that I that I tend to be more predisposed to. My one of my law professors used to say that the most the, the TV show that had the most accurate depiction of the legal system was Night Court. <laughs> So take that for for what it is. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, fellas. Okay, well, thanks, Josiah, for for carrying the load today on the uh, the interview with Derek Cohen. Uh, criminal justice is not my strong suit. The the thing I remember most about my criminal procedure class in law school was the final exam. All the text test questions had a fact pattern. And about 20 minutes into the exam, I started to notice the classmates of mine slamming their pencils down in disgust. I couldn't tell what was going on, but I could tell that people were getting upset. And I started to understand why when I was looking at the uh, uh, the fact pattern in one of the questions, and it starts out, I was standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. It's one of those things where once you start, once the song gets in your head, you really had a hard time regrouping and finishing the rest of your test. So with that thought planted in your head, you know, let's talk a little bit about Derek Cohen's the interview, and what do you think the uh, sort of secret sauce was to uh, to the success that, that Texas has had in criminal justice reform? Yeah, I think your professor just wanted you to take it easy. I think <laughs> that was the message. No, so uh, I thought it was very interesting. We covered a lot of topics. Uh, you know, the the thing that really stood out to me 
was the idea that 95% of folks who go into prison are going to come out one day. Right. And so you got to kind of focus on, well, what can we do to make sure that when they get out, they can be productive members of society, don't reoffend, uh, and, you know, stay on the right side of the law. And then, of course, uh, something that maybe we touched on a little bit, but I, I think has also been a focus of some of the reforms in Texas is not sending people, so many people to prison in the first place if they're not dangerous or if there's other uh, probation or other things that you can do short of prison, which of course is a very expensive, intrusive thing uh, to protect society. So it's very interesting. I I would like to have uh, more discussions on this in the future and maybe uh, dig more deeply into some of these issues. So it occurs to me that uh, if, if we really knew what we were doing and, and putting together this podcast and probably the very first episode, we would have maybe taken the time to talk about ourselves and, uh, and talk about what our vision is for, uh, for Urbane Cowboys. So uh, do you want to take a second to uh, maybe introduce ourselves a bit? Yeah, that would have been smart. There, there's sometimes, you know, you sometimes hear people, uh, you know, when they're introducing someone at a, at a dinner or something, they say, so-and-so needs no introduction. Uh, that's not true for us. <laughs> we're, we're not at that level. So, so we, someone needs to introduce us, even if it's ourselves. Uh, I am Josiah Neely. Uh, I'm the Texas director and the energy policy director at the R Street Institute. It's a free market-based think tank. They're based in Washington, D.C., but I get to live here in Texas. Uh, so that's, that's really great. And for myself, I'm a corporate attorney. Uh, I'm one of the partners in a firm called McCullough Sudan. Uh, But I'm also the director of a a new uh, think tank in Texas called the Lone Star Policy Institute. Lone Star uh, focuses on city and state government, uh, city and state policy. And we're really motivated to uh, sort of reach out to the younger generation, so to speak, and preach free market economics to millennials. You know, based on a lot of the statistics that I'm seeing, uh, and just headlines in general, you see that millennials are starting to really sort of be captivated, maybe flirting a bit with socialism. And one of the things that inspires us is we want to in, in educate millennials about the benefits of uh, free market economics, uh, economic freedom, personal liberty, uh, also and sort of warn them a little bit about uh, the problems that come with socialism and statism in general. So that's kind of, kind of our motivation. Another thing that uh, has really struck struck me is, uh, and I guess the more I get involved with uh, Twitter, is just how mean-spirited people have been, uh, particularly in social media. And one of the things that I really like about uh, the idea of this podcast is to kind of model you know, a little bit more civil behavior, being able to have a conversation mm-hmm. with people that you may or may not uh, agree with. And even though, say, you and I may agree on the vast majority of things, there's probably things that we do disagree on. And we can still be civil about that. And I I know for myself that a lot of my friends are actually um, uh, liberal, progressive, that I disagree with uh, on many issues. But we still manage to go have a meal together and become friends. And we don't hate each other. And I think that, that we need more outlets where people are demonstrating that you know, just because you disagree doesn't mean that you have to certainly be, you know, at war with each other. Yeah, the the discourse, as they say, has gotten pretty toxic. And hopefully, I think that there is an appetite among a lot of people for stuff that, that it doesn't fall into that sort of shouting match, insult, war 
that you get uh, on on Twitter or whatever. So as we you know as we sort of introduce ourselves, I know that a lot of people profess that they don't that they don't like labels, but I think they're probably useful at least as a shorthand to introduce ourselves. How would you describe your sort of uh, political viewpoints? Are there, are there some nice little handy labels for you? So uh, once upon a time, back during the last years of the Bush administration and the early Obama years, there was this thing called reform conservatism. I think maybe uh, Ross Douthat, uh, Ramesh Panuru at National Review, uh, Yuval Levin, folks like that, that sought to take conservative ideas and principles, but use them creatively to come up with the kind of new responses and solutions to the the emerging issues of the day, not necessarily which are which are different from the issues back in the in the early 80, 80s when you had uh, the Reagan administration and stuff like that. So that was something that I was very interested in. I don't, I don't know. The last few years have kind of scrammed a lot of stuff. I don't know if reform conservatism really even exists anymore or, or what the future holds. Uh, it's one thing that I would hope to get out of this podcast is maybe some more expl- exploration of what is the future of conservatism? Uh, how should we reexamine some of the presuppositions that we've had before and uh, how do we how do we respond constructively to the the new issues because you know politics is not a static thing there's there's new issues that are arising all the time and you've got to be able to adapt and respond to that in a in a positive way i think Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to remember a time when the Republicans prided themselves on being the party of ideas. I'm not sure that's really the case anymore. You know, for myself, in terms of labels, I've always viewed myself as a classical liberal, and that's really before it was sort of a trendy thing to do with uh, the Jordan Petersons of the world. Uh, you know, my favorite writers are people like Friedrich Hayek and Thomas Sowell. So I guess I sort of fall into uh, maybe, I guess, what's sort of commonly being called now a conservatarian, sort of that fusion between conservative and libertarian. You know, I guess fundamentally my politics, I guess, are free market economics, free trade, and constitutional law, um, sort of being an originalist. And so everything sort of follows suit from there. I'm not always real comfortable calling myself a conservative, but I sometimes joke that I will answer to conservative when modified by um, Reaganite or Buckleyite. I I do consider myself a conservative. Uh, sometimes I would even think that maybe I should be called a, a reactionary, although that <laughs> word has some, some negative connotations, so maybe not. But uh, I think uh, it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting time that we live in. It, a lot of this stuff, uh, I mean, I would not have expected people to be identifying themselves as socialists <laughs> right sure uh, in American politics at least in the mainstream so that, uh, it's possible that's peaked because I just saw that uh, Elizabeth Warren I think she was talking to some Chamber of Commerce and she was bragging about the fact that she's always been a capitalist so maybe we've seen uh, peak socialism who knows so what are the some of the topics that you'd like to explore on the podcast going forward Doug well you know I think that I really didn't necessarily expect this from the beginning of um, getting involved with Lone Star, which is really just since the beginning of the year that we got it started. We really thought that we'd be focused on uh, more urban area or urban policy issues, and we still intend to do that. But given, um, frankly, given all the uh, the talk, I guess, at the beginning of the year about uh, pulling out of NAFTA 
and other and now sort of walking ourselves into a, a trade war um, I've, I've been much more vocal um, about uh, trade policy and have been much more focused on trade policy um, I've um, spoken recently at a um, SMU O'Neill Center um, Texas Economic Forum having to do with um, our trade policy and have moderated some panels on NAFTA and so forth. So that's been an area that I've been very focused on. Uh, beyond that, another area that I'm um, that I'm sort of that I'm interested in is smart cities technology. I know I mentioned that last last week. Part of the reason I'm fascinated by it is um, it's you know I, I view technology as sort of being neutral. It can be used for good. It can be used for ill. Uh, there's a joke recently from uh, Peter Thiel where he described Bitcoin as libertarian and artificial intelligence as communist. And I, you know, there's there's a little bit of truth to that. Um, and so what I like about thinking about technology is it's very forward thinking, which I think you know the conservative movement right now ought to be a little bit more forward thinking and viewing the world a little bit more about how we use technology lets us go issue by issue and get down to our fundamentals instead of always looking at things at the through the you know the prism of you know today's politics and the latest tweets but it lets us think through sort of in a much more granular basis how we view what policy even should be what the purposes should be and then those trade-offs and so i think it's a maybe it's a foil maybe it's a just a tool to to describe um, the policy ideas that I already have. But I think it's a great way where people that are already sort of forward thinking, you can get their attention and you can talk about big, big ideas that are maybe not the ones that are dominating the headlines, but you can get their attention and have sort of a meaningful conversation. What about you? So energy is obviously an area of interest for me. It's what I do professionally most of the time. I think that there's a lot of uh, exciting policy stuff that's that's going on there. I, I agree with you on the technology thing. I think that uh, there's a lot of kind of up and coming technologies that I haven't really thought about what the policy implications are. You know, whether it's AI or uh, genomics, personal genomics, all sorts of stuff that I would like to look at. And then you know, just broadly, as I as I mentioned, I'm kind of interested in in kind of some big picture stuff about future of conservatism, uh, the future of political discourse uh, in the U.S. And, and in the world, and you know how do we how do we move forward with that, and and how are things going to kind of develop? So, yeah, just a just a couple of minor minor topics. Uh, I think we'll have plenty to talk about. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really, you know, we've already started talking to some of our uh, friends who uh, might be um, on future programs, and and I'm very excited about the reception that we've had. Not to not to do any name dropping just yet, but the, uh, the some uh, some pretty prominent, um, frankly, think tank people have already said that they'd love to be part of this, and so we're looking forward to uh, doing even a better job in the next few episodes and bring on some uh, some high profile people that have a lot of big ideas to discuss. So that's it for us today. Uh, I've had some inquiries about iTunes. Uh, we are in the process of getting on iTunes so you can subscribe and, and all that good stuff. Uh, hopefully by the time this episode is up, you'll be able to do that. If not, it'll happen soon. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, take it easy. <laughs>